Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome historian, author, and most recently, podcast host, Bill Delverell. Growing up as the son of an Air Force surgeon that eventually settled in Colorado Springs, Bill was always interested in history, but it wasn't until college that he decided he didn't want to become a doctor himself and instead chose classes in literature, anthropology, and history, earning his undergraduate degree in American Studies from Stanford. History would then take him to Princeton, where he received his master's and PhD in history. With a focus on the 19th and 20th century American West, Bill has taught at UC San Diego and passing his own Caltech before joining USC in 2004. In addition to being a history professor, Bill is the director of the Huntington USC Institute on California in the West and one of the founding directors of the Los Angeles Service Academy, a program that introduces high school juniors to the infrastructure and institutions of Greater Los Angeles, and is also the director of the USC Collections Convergence Initiative. An insightful writer, he has published and edited several books, including Whitewashed Adobe, which tells the story of Los Angeles through six examples of how the City of Angels emerged by embracing, appropriating, and destroying its connections to Mexico and its people. In 2021, as a project of the Huntington USC Institute on California in the West, Bill launched Western Edition, an excellent podcast series that has spotlighted two fascinating topics in its first two seasons. The first focused on fire, and the second on Los Angeles' own Chinatown. And as we found out while connecting over this podcast, he's a fellow resident of Pasadena, and we happen to live three blocks away from each other. So, without further delay, my conversation with historian Bill Devereaux. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I was looking at our show notes and we have a lot of questions and so I want to march through them. So to start our conversation, can you share a little bit about yourself as I know that you grew up near the Rockies in Colorado Springs? Yes, I grew up in a military family and so we traveled about at the whims of the United States Air Force. My father was a military surgeon and his last assignment as an active duty officer in the Air Force was at the Air Force Academy. So I grew up on the grounds of the Air Force Academy and graduated I'm a proud graduate of Air Academy High. Who were some of your early influences or mentors? And these could be either personal or academic. And why were they so important? I was very fortunate to have a group of more than five, probably closer to 10, very inspiring teachers through my early years, all the way up through high school. So teachers, some of whom I'm still in touch with and others of whom did nonetheless touch my life and my brain in important ways. I was always a careful and fairly ambitious reader. And so there were writers that I was really attracted to about how they put words together and not just in the American West, which is my field of inquiry, but other fields as well. And then as a young teenager, I became the research assistant to a neighbor of ours in Colorado Springs who was writing books about the American West, and he put me to work to help him, and he taught me the nuts and bolts of historical research. After earning your undergraduate degree from Stanford, you went on to receive your master's and PhD in history from Princeton. 
So were you always interested in history? I think I was always interested in history. I grew up in a house filled with books. Both my mother and father are readers. My father had a beautiful library of history books and, of course, medical texts. But I actually went off to college, like most people, not knowing what awaited me or what I would do. And I actually went off to college thinking I wanted to become a surgeon like my dad. And so my real inquiries in high school that were the most exciting to me were chemistry and biology. And then I got to college. It's been a number of decades since I was in college. And back then, if you expressed interest of being on the pre-medical track, your courses were pretty much assigned to you for the first two years of your collegiate career. It had far less flexibility than now what would amount to pre-medical training. And so I remember very clearly as a first semester, first quarter freshman, thinking, I don't want to be locked in. And so I began to take classes in anthropology and history and literature and never look back. Your family has a long history in the U.S., which includes ties to Irish immigrant and Civil War captain Joseph Deverell, who fought in Antietam, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and Cold Harbor. Did this family connection play a role in your interest in American history in that period? Great question. It undoubtedly did, although I think it would be fair to say it was latent. I did grow up in a house with Joseph Deverell's ball and cap pistol from his Civil War service and the very interesting looking leather holster that he carried with him. He inscribed his initials on the butt plate of the little pistol he carried. And he had a distinguished and very dangerous combat record in the Civil War. And so there's no question the familial ties to that part of American history and the fact that he himself was an Irish immigrant late in the Great Hunger Famine migrations. It was around me. There's no question. And then my father was in the U.S. Air Force. His father was in the United States Navy. And then he, that man's grandfather was Joseph in the United States Army with the Union in the Civil War. So it runs through the family, latent and then far more interesting to me as I became an historical investigator on my own. So your focus is on the 19th and 20th centuries and the American West specifically. What do you find so compelling about this time period and the American West? It's a very good question. What do I find compelling about the last two or two plus centuries of Western American history? One is the sheer velocity of change inaugurated by the establishment of the United States and the territorial acquisitions that then unfurled across the vast landscape of the American West very quickly. So I'm thinking about things like the Louisiana Purchase and then the territorial accession after the U.S.-Mexico War. Those kinds of rapid changes associated with technological change, the telegraph, the railroad, urbanization, industrialization. For me, it's American history on fast forward. And so there's so much that can be studied in very quick succession across 150 or so years and also, I'm terribly enamored of the Western landscapes. And so to be able to do historical research, oftentimes in exactly the places that I'm inspired by because of their incredible natural beauty, it's a real privilege. Well, you are the founding director of the Los Angeles Service Academy, which provides high school juniors who are interested in public and civil service an introduction to LA infrastructure and institutions with the hope that the programming will inspire them to become leaders in the community. Why was it important to create the Service Academy? I appreciate this question a lot because the Los Angeles Service Academy may be the best thing my colleagues and I do through the Institute on California in the West. It is really a labor of love. And it started about a dozen years ago because a dear friend of mine, Doug Smith, historian Doug Smith, assisted me with this. We looked around at our basically contact hours with 
students. And I had contact hours with fourth graders because they learned California history through the state curriculum. And I would occasionally be asked to come to a fourth grade classroom or to provide a graduate student who could work with fourth grade kids. That's thrilling, interesting work to be with 10-year-olds and think about what they need to know about Western or California history. I certainly had contact with graduate students and undergraduate students. What was missing for me was teenagers. And having been a teenager and understanding just how so much is on the cusp of change and excitement and new ideas, I wanted contact with students. And so we built the Service Academy precisely for that reason, which is to gather together about 30 to 35 high school juniors every year from around the basin and teach them about how the metropolis is put together. Where's the water come from? What's jurisprudence like? What's food insecurity like? We kayak the LA River. We work a bank of a shift at the LA Food Bank. And many of these kids now, a dozen years later, have returned to LA, having gone off to college or start their career, and they're engaged with civic and civil service. And that is absolutely thrilling to me. We, in non-COVID times, we make a whole set of extensive field trips to see sometimes places that ordinarily the public can't get in because people want to support these kids and their curiosity. And long and short of it is we take a bus and there's always room on the bus. So if you want to come, you're welcome to come. That's pretty amazing considering you know my love of history started in high school and I would have loved to have been exposed to something like that. So kudos to you and your, your fellow founders of that. Moving forward to your writing and you're a prodigious writer having written or edited numerous books, articles, and essays. In 2004, you published Whitewashed Adobe. The book weaves a story about race and ethnicity in LA from about 1850 to World War II through several important chapters in LA's history, such as the cementing of the LA River and the 1924 plague outbreak. It is a critical exploration of how Los Angeles both embraced its Mexican heritage and appropriated it. What attracted you to this topic and how do you view these events now that it's been almost 20 years since the book's original publication? Thank you for that question. I was trained in college by a series of very gifted literature and history professors, one of whom became a really prominent mentor in my development as a scholar. And he's one of the founding and most important historians of the Mexican-American experience in the United States. His name is Albert Camarillo. He recently retired from Stanford after an illustrious career. So I became steeped in the 19th and 20th century history of people of Mexican descent in the Southwest. Simultaneous to that, I was doing courses on American urban history. The West is a very urbanized place from the gold rush period forward. And to understand the modern West, you have to understand the cities. But those two strains of inquiry, for my taste, had not been overlapped enough. So in other words, take a place like Los Angeles. How do you explain the growth of Los Angeles from, say, the late 19th century forward with particular focus on the culture, experience, and identity of people of Mexican descent. And putting those two together and then turning the vantage towards the white population, what did they think of this place that had been Mexico? And what did they think of these people who were here or came here in the early 20th century who were Mexican? And how did those strands of identity and view come together to build the modern metropolis. And while it sounds triumphal in the way I just phrased it, it's not. It's, it can be a story of real dark racial discrimination and oppression. Well, you make many insightful statements throughout the book. At one point you wrote, 
As a historian, I'm obliged to suggest that the city of the past deserves concentrated study before the future is possible. Why is studying history so important to understanding our future? Well, you've put your finger on exactly why I do what I do, and I wish I knew the answer entirely, but I am utterly convinced, and I've been convinced since I was probably a teenager, that in discussions about who we are and where we are going, history has to be at that table. We have to understand the alchemy of the past in terms of why did this happen? Why were decisions made? Who made them? How can we learn from them? How do we know our connections to the very recent or the deeper past? It's foundational. It's leaning on knowledge and both celebrating and also scolding and castigating our forebears for doing what we think is wrong. And I just think it's fundamental. It's It has the advantage of being intrinsically interesting to those of us that do what you and I do. We're fascinated by it. But it's beyond that. It's beyond intrinsic interest. It's critical. One of the areas of focus for you is environmental history. For example, you're the editor of the book Land of Sunshine, an environmental history of metropolitan Los Angeles. As LA and Southern California is impacted by so many different types of disasters and depends on parts of California and parts across the country for energy and water, how do you think we should be thinking about our relationship with nature? Here's a perfect example of what I just said about history at the table. So if you look at the rise of modern Southern California from, let's say, the 1880s forward for decades and decades, there's a presumption and an assumption and a conviction that nature answers to the whims of human beings, that nature is to be controlled, corralled, and told what to do. And that brings us to a lot of the difficulties that we have with our very fragile, very complicated relationship to nature. The hubris that we can push nature around to do what we want it to do back then lacked any perception that nature in that regard is like a rubber band. It will snap back when you least expect it, and it will snap back in ways that you can't even visualize happening. So that complicated relationship with nature has to be understood in historical perspective. We used to think this. We also used to think the natural resources like water were no. And also now we add the utterly complicating and frightening dimensions of climate change, drought, and cataclysmic fire into our perceptions of life here in Southern California or the American West. And the problems and the challenges become not insurmountable, I don't believe, but ever more complicated. Well, I love your analogy about the rubber band. You know, I'm trying to teach my kids about balance, that you cannot take more than you can give. It's something that we often overlook and underappreciate. It's also something that I don't think as a society, let's say Southern California, I don't think we ever want to say, we did it. We've got perfect balance. It's constantly got to be calibrated, constantly got to be readjusted because it rains more or less or it gets drier or wetter. So you were the director of the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. Can you talk a little bit more about the Institute as you've been involved in several really interesting projects? Sure. Thank you. The Institute of California in the West is a formal collaboration between USC, particularly the Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, and the Huntington Library through various departments, education and prominently the research department. And the Institute is guided by a commitment to basically three principles, teaching, research, and public engagement and outreach. And so all that we do 
is to bring scholarly acuity and ideas and research, not just to the public, but to dialogues with the public, because there's much to be learned from the public. And that could be school kids, it could be back to school, back, back to school learners, it could be adults, it could be just members of the public who are hungry for humanity's perspective on our world. And the Institute moves pretty nimbly. We're a small operation and we move to projects that really excite us that we think are important. So Western wildland fire, you can't argue it's not important and history needs to be part of the discussion. And then our interest in racial issues and ethnic history in Southern California led us right to our Chinatown project, which is fascinating and multifaceted and multidisciplinary as well. Last year, you and the Institute launched Western Edition, which is a wonderfully produced podcast series. And I'll provide a link to it on, in the show notes of this one. Um, the purpose of which is to connect the past to our present through stories of the people and the communities in our area. As you mentioned, season one explored our relationship with fire. How did the podcast come about and why did you choose this medium to help tell these stories? Terrific question. Thank you. I had been cajoled by friends and colleagues to think about doing a podcast for years. And frankly, it intimidated me because I'm not adept at technological interfaces in that way. And I thought our plate was too full. But through that cajoling and what suasion, we were convinced to do one. And everything we do at the Institute, it's built upon collaboration. There's more than enough work to go around. There's more than enough things to poke yourselves into with collaborative teams. And so we found the right kind of technological help through our brilliant engineer, Avishai Artsy. And we found financial support. We found PR support through the wonderful Katie Dunham. And then my team, Stephanie Yee, Jessica Kim, and Elizabeth Logan, we all put our rolled our sleeves up and thought, let's see what happens here. And I have to say the podcast is very nearly intoxicating. And it's really, I don't have to tell you, it's really fun. And it's great to throw something out there and then hear back. It's different than putting a book or an article in the scholarly streams. This is different. And I've learned a lot. We've now finished our second season and we're about to launch our third. For season one, was there a particular episode that was especially interesting to you and why? So season one examined, examined various facets of our West on Fire project. And there's six or six and a half episodes if you count a kind of prologue episode. I guess I have a, I like them all and they're very different. They're very different. They range from the public health insults of wildfire smoke to an investigation of incarcerated or formerly incarcerated firefighters to an investigation of indigenous fire practice and indigenous fire knowledge. So you can see they're really varied. If I had to, if you could push me to pick one, I had the most fun with our Smokey Bear episode. Smokey Bear is a remarkably compelling figure in American cultural history, the most successful public ad campaign in American history. And weaving together the history of this creature with training in the Forest Service, where young Forest Service rookies have to put on this very hot, very furry outfit and parade around. And Smokey doesn't speak. So you have to parade around and kids want to talk to Smokey, can't respond. To then think about the cultural reverberations of Smokey Bear and his lessons about fire suppression. And then we, I think brilliantly, actually, it was a lucky stroke, but we brought in the magnificent writer, Josh Wheeler, a writer about the American Southwest, who's from the neighborhood where Smokey Bear, the cub, was from in Southern New Mexico. 
And Josh gave the Smokey Bear story a particular kind of angle that's both brilliant and immensely funny. So that one. Like many kids, I grew up with a Smokey the Bear teddy bear on my shelf. And so it was, Smokey the Bear was always present in my room as a kid growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And we also learned, just as an aside that may be of interest, we also learned with our Forest Service colleagues that we don't say Smokey the Bear. We say Smokey Bear. And they're very insistent upon that. So Smokey Bear has an identity, a history, and a meaning to Forest Service professionals that is overlapping but different than the American public or the world's public perception of Smokey Bear. And the other thing we learned was Smokey Bear, the real life bear who was rescued from a fire, wildland fire in New Mexico and then transferred to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., was a deeply unpleasant and grumpy bear um, and belied his view in his anthropomorphized public relations character as friendly, even cuddly. Not so for the real one. But he was his mom and dad died in a fire and he got put in a zoo. Who can blame him? We are recording this conversation in early July and season two of Western Edition just wrapped up. Season two, you focus, like you said, on Los Angeles' Chinatown, which is one of the first Chinese-American cultural centers in the U.S. and a topic that you've studied and written about before. What is it about Chinatown that you find so interesting? There's a lot of ways for me to answer where the interest in Chinatown comes from. One is fairly conventionally scholarly in origin. And that was the arrival 20 years ago of a cache of historic photographs about the original Chinatown to the Huntington. So 128 beautiful black and white photographs of the Chinatown that no longer exists. The one that was knocked down to make way for Union Station in the mid-1930s. These were time travel opportunities to look at these photographs and see what had once been. So all of the scholarly bells and whistles went off. What can we do with these? What can we learn from them? There are other reasons I'm so interested in this. I've always had an interest in Asian and Asian American history. I grew up in part in Japan because of my father's military service. And I'm also terribly attracted to understanding Chinatown because of its centrality in the heart of Los Angeles, both the original Chinatown and the new Chinatown, which is now what we call Chinatown. So the, all those strands, and then frankly, in the COVID era, the spike in anti-Asian thought and behavior and violence, once again, I think history has a role to play here to try to fight that. And so to focus our attention on Asian American Southern California and through the humanities is a part of trying to push back against the darkness of racial discrimination. Well, I especially love the episode on the C family because it has a connection to Pasadena. The antique and furniture store FCU1 on Colorado is just minutes from where we are. We found out in the course of connecting over this podcast that we live close by to each other and we're just minutes away from this incredible store, which was founded in 1888 and is the oldest continually operating Asian antique business in the United States. Something that no one would ever really realize just driving by it on Colorado. Yeah, it's just the, it's the classic kind of thing. Like you, something looks so maybe prosaic. It's a it's an antique furniture store for with Chinese artifacts and furniture. And it's in a busy part of Pasadena near PCC. Maybe you just drive by it. But if you open the door, metaphorically and physically, you enter a world 
that modern Chinese American Los Angeles cannot be understood without grappling with that store. An event that you've written about before and is the focus of one episode of season two is the 1871 massacre of about 18 Chinese in L.A. by a mob of whites and Latinos. Pasadena has its own horrible history with Chinese prejudice culminating in the 1885 burning of businesses and the passing of a city ordinance limiting where Chinese residents could live. In the episode, you ask why this incident and similar events are not better known. When I was listening to the episode, I was thinking to myself, I had no idea this this occurred. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I asked my parents, who were both born and raised in Los Angeles, if they, if they had ever heard of this, and they said no. Why do you think events like this are not better known? Uh, it's a really good question as to why we don't know something like the anti Chinese massacre of 1871 better. There's so many ways to get at this, and I'm not sure equally or even correct. One is to recall that our collaborators in the Chinese and Chinese American community, they know about this. So the amnesia may be selective. You can bet they know about it, and they have not forgotten it. So it adds a certain power, urgency, and poignancy to the memorialization movement. The other is, I think, probably the anti-71 anti-Chinese 1871 massacre has been consigned in popular culture and popular memory to way back then, to that was our rollicking frontier days. That was when we were uncivilized. We've gotten past that. And boy, does that make me nervous because I don't, that kind of consignment to some rough and ready frontier past that now we don't need to talk about it because we don't do that anymore. That's wrong. So I think that's part of it. I also think the city moved past it very quickly in terms of, let's not talk about that very much. We're on a campaign to put Los Angeles on the map and a dozen or more bodies in the street is not a good PR effort on our part to advertise Los Angeles. Yes. Now that's not to say, it's not to say that both in the Pasadena case and in the Los Angeles case, it's not to say there are people who are horrified by the massacre. It's not to say that there are people who thought this is not who we are. Of course, they're always going to be that. But I think the general reflex is, let's move on. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited that the podcasting tool that I've used since the early days of this show, Zencaster, is a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most is that Zencaster records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is a lot more customized. Plus, their secured cloud backup so you never lose an interview, post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use, there's nothing to download, my guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code thecrowncitypod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You also get a 14-day free trial. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I am proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show.
With so many historical events that get whitewashed, whose responsibility is it to make sure that these lessons are taught and these stories are told? What a great question. So I think you'd get a hundred different responses to, from a hundred people. One kick I'm on as an historian is we need to do far more in our public spaces to teach and support dialogue about the past. In other words, let's go back to our fourth grade example. Ten-year-olds learn as much California history as the state curriculum can work with them on across the year of their fourth grade education. Nothing wrong with that. But it is wrong to point our finger at fourth grade teachers and say, how come they didn't learn this? How come they didn't learn that? We're burdening our teachers who are already overburdened by all the challenges of that career. Why not exercise much more public expenditures and public projects that put California history in that neighborhood or in other parts of where those kids are going to know, are going to travel around, and their parents and their grandparents, etc.? Why not inculcate a perspective on history in public space? And I'm talking far more ambitiously than a guy on a horse statue. I'm done with guys on horses. Let's get into the public realm and use that public realm to create much richer dialogues and lasting memories about the importance of history. I'm in my 40s and I went to a Catholic uh, school. And so we, you know, we all built missions. We've referenced this in different podcasts that I've done. And I think that's no longer necessarily the case. I, I'm not I'm familiar with what the fourth graders do when my oldest kids will be in the fourth grade soon. But is it an issue of we're exposing children to this history too young? Placing the class in high school would make a difference because you'd be able to cover things in more depth? Yes, I think, as I said, there's nothing wrong with teaching fourth graders California history. What we could do better with, it used to be, and you probably know this from your own education, California or the American West was generally cleaved off from the rest of the American national experience and taught as its own thing. Like, here's the West. Or meanwhile, in the American West, which is doesn't make any sense because the American West, as far as I can tell, is politically, culturally, and territorially connected to the rest of the United States. So why not think about 11th grade American history, which is a required curricular objective in most public schools? Let's put some more Western examples in there about American history in the 11th grade, urbanization, industrialization, the coming of the First World War. Let's get the West represented in there better and more. And there's a movement to do that. So as we kind of close out our conversation, you know, we're seeing history get pulled into politics and the culture wars, the examples being the 1619 Project and then the counter 1776 Commission. You know, we find ourselves in interesting but very dangerous time when we can select what history we believe or view the past through rose-colored glasses. When you think about the next five years, 10 years, and beyond, how do you think the study of history will change, and what role do you see yourself playing in it? So the rose-colored glasses metaphor for history is not new. Pick up a textbook on American history from 1920 and just see the gaps in the way the story is told, see the gaps in the communities represented, see the gender gaps. So that's not new. And history has always been hooked to questions of nationalism and national identity. And that can be fraught, and it can be angry, and then it can be dangerous. On the one hand, as an historian, the current debates thrill me because history is being argued about vociferously. On the other hand, as you know, these are dangerous waters. There are dangerous consequences to this about disagreements about our American past that seem to foment 
reactions that are far more frightening than scholarly or public exchange of ideas and disagreements. So I'm nervous about that, to say the least. Finding that balance between I'm thrilled as a professional historian that this is happening, and I'm quite aware that it is shaky ground. The last thing I want to do as a historian is back up. So I'd like to stay involved. It is really uncertain what's about to happen. And I would say my characterization of that uncertainty is 5 to 10% excitement, 70% anxiety, and whatever is left in our 100% bucket, fear. I love Pasadena's trees. I do the really intricate history of this. I do like the personalities that have come out of this place. Jackie Robinson, Julia Child, the writer Paul Fussell. Those people intrigue me immensely. Well, you are a Pasadena resident and a historian, and Pasadena is steeped in history, both good and bad. And in that way, I would argue that Pasadena is a more interesting place to live. What do you enjoy most about living in Pasadena? And is there a historical place in the city that you particularly like? Historical places. I am enamored of the corner of Colorado and Orange Grove. There's a World War I monument that's a giant flagpole that people don't see anymore. And I go there from time to time. Across the street, the Colorado Street Bridge is a fascinating public work. The Arroyo itself is rich in indigenous and other kinds of human histories in the San Gabriel Valley, from indigenous population to the early farmers and settlers to the royal culture of kind of bohemian arts and crafts. I'm very interested in that. And I would say also just the variety of Pasadena residential architecture. I don't mind going around and just looking and trying to date in my head, when was that built? When was that built? When was that built? And it's just creating a kind of vocabulary about putting sites into chronology. And it's good exercise. As I get towards the latter parts of my career, it's good exercise to just see if I can still do that. So you've raised children here in Pasadena, and I'm doing that right now. What are some lessons or local historical events that you think children growing up here should know? Good question. I have a sideways answer to that, which is I spent half my professional life at the Huntington, not technically in Pasadena, but across the street. That institution's vast resources of scholarly and imagery, material, documentary material, et cetera, that open up our understandings of Southern California, Pasadena, and elsewhere. There's a, an array of events, workshops, conferences, et cetera, about our home. And my children probably tire of me saying, let's go to that. Let's go to that. Let's go to that. But every now and then they do. And I appreciate that and that opportunity and that luxury of having that institution in our neighborhood. I guess the other way I would look at this is my children came up through Pasadena sports and the usual compliment of AYSO and T-ball and all that. And while those aren't expressly historical learning exercises, they are because their teammates come from all kinds of walks of life and all kinds of backgrounds. And we played at public parks and we understood the commitment to the public sphere. That's an important lesson. As we close out our conversation, I wanted to share a quote from your last episode of Western Edition as it had a real impact on me. You said, we fail as a city, as a community, and as a society if we don't wrestle with all the history that lays at our feet, its angels and its demons. So I wanted to thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, for your work helping us to better understand our past so that we can better understand our present, and for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. 
It really was my pleasure. Thank you for your careful scrutiny of things I've done. I really am grateful and I'm honored and I enjoyed it immensely. My many thanks to Bill for coming on the show. Like him, I've always been fascinated by history, but it wasn't until college that I started to challenge what I knew and how I learned it. I love Bill's philosophy that we can't visualize the future until we know our past. So let's try to better understand our community and country with the hope that our knowledge will empower us to build a more equal and just future. For more information and to support Bill's work, you can visit the Huntington USC Institute on California in the West at dornsife.usc.edu slash ICW and the Los Angeles Service Academy at laserviceacademy.org. You can find Western Edition wherever you get your podcasts. And be on the lookout for Season 3, which Bill and his team are already working on. There are so many people that help keep this show going. First, I wanted to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my family for their love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I'd love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Finally, this podcast is a family, and we recently suffered the loss of one of our own. So this podcast is made in loving memory of August Thomas. You and your parents are always in our hearts. We love you. Until next time, please remember to stay well, keep the past always present, and as always, see you around town. And as a, and as a, and as we found out, well, I got it right the first time.